0: All right. Thank you, guys. So good seeing you this morning. Glad you're a part of this worship experience, even if you're joining us uh, online. And uh, always our prayer is that uh, during the course of this service, as God speaks to your heart and stirs in your heart and mind, uh, leading you to consider decisions about your relationship with him, we do hope that uh, you will take the time to reach out. Just text FL respond to that number that is provided for you, 833-571-3475, and enable us to to converse with you, to reach out to you, pray with you about the decision that God is laying on your heart. Maybe for some of you this morning here or online, uh, it means coming to that place of deciding once and for all to become a follower of Jesus Christ or maybe you're already a follower of Christ, but you need to plug in, be a part of a church family. And so we wanna be able to help you in that journey. So we hope that you will reach out and pray you will reach out to us and give us an opportunity. Uh, hey, hope you'll be back tonight, six o'clock. I know this has already been mentioned. The Keyboards of Christmas is always a very special event. If you have not already, it is a wonderful opportunity to invite friends and neighbors and coworkers. Uh, what is true is that oftentimes you can have have those individuals that would be willing to come to an event such as that, that you could never convince to come to a church service. So I hope that you have already taken advantage of that opportunity and the power of the invite uh, to let your friends, family, and uh, co-workers, neighbors, all of those different groups know about what's happening here tonight. But we'll see you at uh, six o'clock in this uh, this season of Advent, this particular Sunday, as we talk about uh, the theme of joy I want us to look at at the book of Philippians, Uh, chapter four and verses four through six will be our focal passage. And as you're opening your Bibles there, uh, in uh, 431 AD, 431 to 433 AD, the emperor of Rome was Julian. Now, interesting thing about Julian, he was the the nephew of Constantine. Now you may remember from history that Constantine uh, was the emperor that declared Christianity and this is to our detriment to this day, Constantine determined and declared that Christianity would be the official state religion of the Roman Empire. His nephew, Julian, was a man, a young man, that uh, studied theology. He studied the Christian faith and uh, would even lead worship at times. But after becoming the emperor and probably having all the things available to him that that position afforded him, he renounced the Christian faith. In fact, history documents Julian as being Julian the apostate. That's how he's he's known. Julian's complaint against Christianity was this. He said, quote, have you looked at these Christians closely? Hollow-eyed, pale-cheeked, flat-breasted, all. They brood their lives away, unspurred by ambition. The sun shines for them, but they do not see it. The earth offers them its fullness, but they desire it not. All they desire is to renounce and to suffer that they may come to die. Now, whatever else Julian may have known about the Christian faith or understood about Christian theology, his perception of those that he knew in his circles, those professing Christians with whom he was familiar, that there was a lack of joy in their life. There was a lack of vividness and vitality about this faith and this savior that they were supposedly following. Now in my background not being raised in church and I certainly didn't have the knowledge of a Julian. But if you were to ask me back then as a young man how I would define Christianity based upon how I observed other Christians. I would pretty much have to agree with Julian. That was my perception of, of Christians. The professing Christians that I knew in high school and in college before becoming a, a Christian, they were a sour bunch. I mean, man, it just seemed like they hated everything and everybody. They were judgmental, critical. It seemed like their biggest fear was being caught in a room where a joke's being told. I mean, there was just, there was just seemingly no enjoyment of life. I mean, they made, the ones I knew, they made the Puritans look like party animals. Well, maybe you're not familiar with Puritans. You know, if, you, if you're familiar with history, if you, if, you took, if you took history, which I know you all did at some point in school, the, the Puritans in the colonial America, I mean, we're, were all in a sense the ancestors of, of Puritans. Someone has well said regarding Puritanism, and I disagree with it. But one of their critics of Puritanism said that Puritanism is is the haunting fear that someone somewhere may be having a good time, (laughs) and sadly, that's the way Christianity is often portrayed. That was my understanding of the Christian faith when I looked upon it as an observer. So I'm grateful that, that when I became a believer that, that my faith journey was not birthed by someone that, that, that looked that way. The man that would bring me to Christ had a very vibrant kind of faith, a very engaging kind of faith, a guy that, he was just a normal guy that actually enjoyed life. But I often saw contrast to his style and his, his portrayal of faith, especially among preachers. I, I saw I saw another side. In fact, I was intrigued by it when in my first pastorate back in the late eighties and early nineties, I would rush home after Sunday night church there in hip Hill, Texas, because at eight 30, there was a national broadcast of a, of a well-known popular Baptist pastor. And I was intrigued by this guy watching. I mean, he was, he was, I mean, this guy you talk about, man, I mean, he was spitfire. I mean, he was hellfire brimstone man. He was spitting and shouting. He had one volume and it was loud. And I mean, he was like angry, loud. And when I say angry, loud, I mean I mean beat red face, red beat face, loud and angry. I mean, this guy was spitting, fuming. He was standing on one pants leg when he got done. And I was just captivated. I was just intrigued by this guy, by someone who, pre- his content was great, but just, uh, I was just intrigued at, at at, at his demeanor, how, how he preached, I mean, just this unrelenting volume from start to finish. One particular Sunday night stands out above all others. Man, he was up there letting them have it. I mean, man, he was delivering the goods as he usually did Sunday in, Sunday out. And all of a sudden, he stopped midstream, stopped right in the middle of the sermon. Looked up at the balcony and said, hey, hey, you kids up there, This on national TV. Hey, you kids up there, settle down, and I'll bring every one of you down here. Parents, we're not running a child care service around here. You either get hold of those kids, line them out, or I'll bring them down here and I'll take care of it. I thought, wow, I'd never seen anything like that. And what's shocking to me is that the number of times the word joy is used in scripture, joy and all of its derivatives, all of its variations, it's always been shocking to me that with the number of times, the volume of times that the word joy is used in scripture, some 430 times, how infrequently that word is used by the world To describe us that's why I so appreciate what Paul is doing here and his emphasis in the theme of joy in his letter to the church at Philippi written by a man the Apostle Paul while sitting in prison while sitting in a Roman prison And yet, in those circumstances, facing the very real possibility of a death sentence, here we have this man, Paul, writing about joy. And I want you to listen to one verse in particular here, verse 4. I want you to to listen to his resounding, his resounding proclamation. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say, rejoice. Now, what we we have in his joyful trifecta here, it is a joyful trifecta of the joy that defines Paul's life. And so what I want us to do this morning is I want us to dissect it, these three ways that Paul has expressed it here. I want us to look at this trifecta of joy in the hopes that that as we come to see Paul's joy that he has in the most adverse of circumstances, as maybe we can comprehend Paul's understanding of joy and the role that it plays in his life, the centrality of it in his life, that it might come to characterize our lives as well out there in the world as people know us to be the followers of Christ, regardless of our circumstances in life. Because as we look at Paul's admonition here in verse four, Paul holds forth first of all a joy of exhortation, exhortation from the first one, from the very first word, rejoice. This is the suggestion that Paul is making. He's saying to the church at Philippi, regardless of the circumstances, rejoice. In fact, this is so important to Paul. This is so central to the messaging of Paul, especially to the church at Philippi, a church with whom he had a very close kinship, a church that he loved immensely, profoundly, deeply. So important is this, Paul repeats it twice for emphasis. Rejoice in the Lord always again. I say to you, rejoice. And not just here, it is a recurring motif. Some 16 times in the Philippian letter, Paul uses the word joy or some derivative of the word joy. And if you go back and read the book of Philippians, you'll find in these 16, in these 16 uses of that, uh, usages of that word joy, they are pretty well equally divided in talking about uh, the joy of both Paul and the joy of those believers there in, in Philippi. In fact, you can go all the way, it first appears, going all the way back to chapter 1 and verse 4, we see Paul's joy as he he prays for them, as he prays for the church while he is imprisoned. Chapter 4 and verse 10, his his joy over the gift that, that they have sent to him. And Paul has already said in chapter four and verse one that, that when the day of judgment comes and, and as I minister around the world, you, you are going to be my crown and my joy. When I stand before God and I stand in judgment for the opportunities and the stewardship of the opportunities that, that have been afforded me to proclaim the gospel Your exhibit A. I'm going to point to you as my crown and my joy. And then he says, and these may be the most substantial verses, because Paul, remember, he's writing from a context of being in prison, as he says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Paul's example of rejoicing always in his circumstances and the unique kinship and the connection that he has with the church at Philippi, this kinship and love that he shared. Listen to chapter two in verse 17, he says, but even if I'm being poured out as a drink offering, that's the same language that Paul will use in his letter to Timothy. As he's facing very real possibility of of a death sentence, Paul writes and says to Timothy, "I'm, I'm already being poured out as a drink offering. Here he's using the same language. But even if I'm being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. A man who's in prison, facing death, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. You too. I urge you. Rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. It's no wonder. That as Paul reflects the joy of his life, the joy that undergirds his life, the joy that sustains him, and as he expounds upon his understanding of joy and the role that it is to play in the life of the believer, then we should not be at all shocked that Paul, as he pins about his, his joy, as he pins his understanding of joy, that he does it with great exhortation to the church. But this is to be our defining characteristic as the world looks upon us. It's not just a joy of exhortation of which he writes, but it's also a joy of association. Notice he says there in verse 4, rejoice in the Lord. There's, There's the source of our joy, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. And then in verse five, I like the connection here. He says, let your gentle spirit be known to all people. The Lord is near. Perfect for the Advent season, the Lord is near. Sounds like Emmanuel, doesn't it? God with us. Listen, our joy is based upon this association, it is based upon this relationship, our joy is predicated by a relationship with the resurrected Christ. That is the basis our joy is found in him, not in our, in our circumstances this is a deeply rich spiritual quality this joy is something that emerges as a result of this relationship with the resurrected Christ his spirit dwelling in us him abiding in us and us abiding in him and not and not just joy But all the virtues, all the qualities that are found that result from the fruit of the Spirit. Galatians chapter 5, verse 22, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there there is no law, Paul says. Did you notice the first three virtues that were listed there in verse 22? Love, joy, and peace. Three of the themes of Advent. The only one missing from that list is hope. Well, why wouldn't hope be there? Well, it's because Christ Himself is the embodiment of hope. Remember, our definition as believers, our definition of of hope, it's not, it's unlike the world, it's not wishful thinking. It is a conviction of what is to be. And it has just yet to become. We just await it's happening. And yet Christ himself is the embodiment of what they had hoped. That God would send forth a Messiah. And in their patience and in their endurance, God sent forth his son. As he says in Galatians 4, as Paul writes, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son into the world. And the hope of God's people was fulfilled in the birth of the Christ child and through his resurrection it has been affirmed that he is in fact the Christ, the promised one of God, the one in whom we hoped and now is the one in whom we continue to hope until he comes again and we have that same conviction that because he came he will come again but you know what our task is in the meantime it is to bear the fruit of the spirit of the resurrected Christ who dwells in us that is our task That as the Spirit of God dwells in his people, as he abides in his people, in this in-between time of having come and will come again, the Spirit is working, laboring in us, this work of transformation, working out our salvation. And how is that made evident? Listen, not by religious piety, not by sour faces, not by criticism, not by judgment, not by bitterness but it's the fruit of the spirit being born out of our lives. And if that's not the reality of our faith experience, if it's not the fruit of the spirit that is being born out of our lives, that's usually the result of either one or two things, one or maybe both. Sometimes it, it's because we, we, we have a faulty understanding of the Christian faith. A faulty understanding of how the life of faith is, is supposed to look. And maybe we've had the, this, this, this religious model uh, before us all of our lives and we know nothing else but this kind of legalistic Pharisaism. And maybe that even filters, maybe that even blinds us in our our reading of scripture and we look only for confirmation of that kind of of religious legalism. Certainly blinded the Pharisees. So it could be that, that you just have a faulty understanding of how the life of faith is to be portrayed. Or the result, it may be the result where this joy or any other virtues of the Spirit, fruit of the Spirit are lacking, it could be that you have allowed the circumstances of this world to steal away your joy or to steal away all of these other virtues that are the fruit of the Spirit. And instead of the fruit being borne out, you've become bitter, you've become angry, you become heavy hearted, allowing the circumstances of life to overwhelm you and to steal away the testimony of the Spirit who lives and abides in you. I think we always have to ask the question all of us do I really love Jesus? Do I really love having a relationship with Jesus? Or is this just some, is this just some inconvenient burden that I'm trying to bear so, so that others will think I'm a Christian? I think we all have to ask that question, do I really enjoy Jesus? Do I really enjoy this association, this relationship with him. Because if you really enjoy it, you're you're going you're going to follow the leadership of the Spirit. You're going to seek the leadership of the Spirit. And you're going to seek for the fruit of the Spirit to be made manifest in your life. If you really enjoy your relationship with Jesus, that's what you want. But if you don't really enjoy that association and relationship with Jesus, what you gravitate towards is legalism and a a religious piety that just turns people that turns everyone off and the only ones attracted to it are just other Pharisees the litmus test of of our quality of the quality of our faith it's always the fruit of the Spirit I'm 64 years old I've given the entirety of my adult life to the study of Scripture a year and a half after my conversion experience as a 21 year old, actually about three years later, I, I mean, I took 120 hours of graduate, postgraduate studies in theology. And what that created in me is, is a thirst and a hunger, a restless thirst and hunger for knowing and seeking to understand the things of God. And over the course of these 35 years since, I mean, I've been a life learner and I have have read diligently the great academic works of the keenest theological minds over 2,000 years of Christian thought. I mean the keenest of intellects. So whether it was academic reading or whether it was devotional reading. I've come to a place where where I've resolved a great many things in my in my mind in my understanding of the nature and character of of God but you know even with all of that unceasing reading and studying as a 64 year old follower of Christ as a pastor for me in my own life the litmus test of how is my faith truly being portrayed? What impact is my relationship with Jesus and my enjoyment of my relationship with Jesus having upon my life? It's not having solved some of the problems in my, in my mind. It's Galatians 5.22, the older I get, the simpler my theology becomes. How does my life stack up against Galatians 5.22 and 23, the fruit of the Spirit? How well are all of these things being portrayed in my life? That's the litmus test for all of it. It's not how much you know. It's not if you're able to pass a test on matters of theology. It's as the resurrected Christ, the spirit of the resurrected Christ, living in you, abiding in you, having a relationship with you. How are these things being made manifest? In your life? Is this what the world is seeing in your life? Listen, this time of year, as Corey Tinboom said, missionary Corey Tinboom said, we can celebrate the birth of Jesus a thousand times in Bethlehem, but if he's not born in you, you're lost. If he is not born in you, you're lost. Because if he's born in you, there's going to be an association, there's going to be a relationship, the Spirit is going to abide in you. And out of this association with him, there will be joy in your life. There will be all of these virtues of the Spirit that work and manifest themselves in who you are as a follower of Christ for the world to see. Paul's was a joy of exhortation, a joy of association but it's also a joy of duration. You see how he said it, rejoice in the Lord, what? Always, always, again, I say rejoice. Now don't confuse joy with happiness. Of the 430 times that the word joy and all of its derivatives are used in scripture, happiness is only used 10 times in scripture. Happiness is linked to circumstances. Joy is, is something that abides and dwells deep within us, regardless of, of circumstances. You think Paul was happy being in prison? Of course not. It's not about sticking your head in the sand of the circumstances of life and pretending that you're happy about it. No, it's, it's not, it's two different animals, not even apples, it's apples and oranges. But this is something that, that as Paul describes it, it is something that, that is not dependent upon circumstances. It is an attitude and perspective towards all things that happen to you in life. It is something that is always there within you that is practiced in your life regardless of circumstances. Listen, you're going to endure circumstances. Whatever it is we face in life, you're going to endure it one way or the other. You're going to come through it and you're going to get to the other side. The bigger issue is how you're going to get through it. That's what Paul is addressing. Because that's what affects the witness and the testimony of our Lord from God's people. You're going to go through it. You can either go through it well or you can go through it poorly. And you can have an attitude that I'm going to have a bad attitude, I, I, I'm going to be angry, I'm going to be bitter. And my, my little formula, my little faith formula broke down, I went to church and get, this still happened. Or you can choose to say, you know, God's doing something that I can't see. I believe that God is bigger than circumstances. I believe in the providence Providential purposes of God, there is something going on beyond my present circumstances. And so I find joy in the Lord always, regardless of circumstances. In fact, there's a nice connection here to verse six where he says, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and pleading with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. That is in perfect harmony with rejoicing in the Lord, always, to not be anxious about anything. Well, Bobby, you know, know, sometimes think, no. It's always, rejoice in the Lord, always. Yeah, but you know, Paul probably didn't ever have to deal, no, anything always in anything, always rejoicing in the Lord, about anything, and when we have that attitude, when we determine as followers of Christ that that is going to be my spirit, that is going to be my attitude, that is going to be my approach, you know, in that you will find that you can endure through the most adverse and the most fearful circumstances that you will ever face in life i recently read a story by dr roberta hestines an account that she gave when she was president of Eastern University they had a young man that graduated there in fact he was the first African-American Brian Stevenson he was the first African-American one of the first ones to ever graduate from Eastern University this was a brilliant young man in fact he he came from a home strangely enough where his parents did not even finish grammar school but dr. Hestein said that Brian Stevenson was an amazing had an amazing capacity intellectual capacity a scholar student Graduated top in his class from Eastern University, received a full scholarship of the Harvard School of Law. And while at Harvard he received every recognition, every competitive award that Harvard had to offer, Barry Stevenson won it. Well, you can imagine after his graduation from Harvard, he was offered positions at the most esteemed law firms in the Northeast. It was a perfect opportunity for this young man to climb the corporate ladder, but Brian Stevenson was more concerned about how that ladder leaned against the wall. (laughs) He had a sense of calling in his life, and so he decided to forego the large salaries, the partnerships, the potential to be an equity partner. He resisted the prestige of everything that that these law firms were were offering him, and he chose instead to go to Alabama to offer to, to to start a small practice and to become a defendant to defend those who were the victims of injustice that sat on death row in the state of Alabama. He recognized in studying these cases that that most of them men of color were not afforded sound counsel they were given public defenders and they just went through the perfunctory motions and he committed himself to this work Brian Stevenson his most his most popular case is one with which you will be familiar, a celebrated case. Walter McMillian, after he defended him and he was taken off of death row, he was written up, uh, Brian Stevenson was written up in People magazine. MGM contacted him, gave him $200,000 for his story. It would become a popular movie, but he put that $200,000 back into his, his law firm. But Dr. Hestings was telling a story, that the story I'm telling you. Dr. Hestings was told this story at a dinner party by, by Brian Stevenson himself about another case that took place in the late 90s, early 2000s, about a black man that was wrongly accused of murder. There were no African Americans allowed in the courtroom. Keep in mind, this is 1950s or 60s. This is late 90s early 2000s. There were no African Americans allowed into the courtroom. Barry Stevenson said that charges were trumped up against this man, falsely accused, found guilty. Sentenced to life in prison by that jury. The judge Decided not to go with the jury and sentence the man to death row to die. That case came to Barry Stevenson's attention and he took it on. Strange thing was that man the the accused the one found guilty when the murder took place at the established time of that murder This man was sitting in church on a Sunday night with 30 other church members who gave testimony that he was with them in church. And yet the police, the sheriff's office, they were able to convince one witness to say, no, I saw him commit the murder. And so for seven years, this man sat on death row until Barry Stevenson took the case. He began gathering up information, pulling up the files and going through all the files and materials, evidence that that was available to him. And he said he was shocked to find that the sheriff's office had actually recorded their interrogation of this witness and that the tape they didn't destroy. So finding that tape and gathering up all the evidence, you can hear on that tape the sheriff coercing That witness and saying, you're going to testify to this, that you saw him commit that murder. And the man says, you and I both know that's not right. I wasn't there. And you and I both know that he's innocent. And the sheriff said, if you don't testify to this, this is all on tape. If you don't testify to this, I'm going to arrange it to where you go to the electric chair with him but we are going to get a conviction in this case. Now, when Barry Stevenson, jumping ahead seven years, when he presented all that evidence, there was a retrial. But you know, even in that day, in the late 90s, early 2000s, they still said there's there's not going to be any from the black community allowed into the courtroom. That he will have no one behind him as a show of support. Well, there was such a public outrage that the court decided to allow a representation of the black community to sit in that courtroom behind the accused as just a show of support. The church in that community selected Ms. Williams to be that advocate, to be that witness of support. Ms. Williams was a 70-year-old woman, white-haired. On the appointed day, she wrapped her shawl around her shoulders, put on her hat, took her pocketbook, and she went to the courthouse. The sheriff's office had set up metal detectors at the door of of that particular courtroom because they didn't know what was gonna happen with this, this rowdy mob. From the church. (laughs) Ms. Williams passed through that medical detector, no issue, but as she passed through it there was a German Shepherd there being held by a deputy sheriff and as Ms. Williams passed through, the sheriff's deputy said something to that dog and the dog began growling as Ms. Williams approached. Ms. Williams froze. Tears began to well in her eyes. Barry Stevenson standing in the courtroom at his, the defendant's table saw all of this transpiring. He said, "Miss Williams, it's okay. You come on. She couldn't move. Tears begin to flow down her face. She was immobilized completely. Finally, she was able to turn around and leave the courthouse. After the day's testimony, Barry Stevenson left. He thought everyone had left from the courthouse, but when he walked out, there was Ms. Williams standing there. Ms. Williams said, Mr. Stevenson, I'm so sorry. I'm so ashamed of myself. I just couldn't do it. Barry Stevenson said to her, Ms. Williams, Brian Stevenson said to her, Ms. Williams, that's okay. You don't have to do it. She said, no, Mr. Stevenson, you need to know why. Why I couldn't do it. You need to know what happened to me. You see, I was at Selma decades ago when they unleashed those dogs on us. And I've been afraid of those dogs ever since. Brian Stevenson said, Ms. Williams, I understand you don't have to do this. She said, no, sir, I'll be back tomorrow. She said, I'm going to do this. It's going to be done. Ms. Williams went home and she began praying and she began reading her Bible. Interestingly she read these verses that we are considering this morning. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again I say rejoice. Do not be anxious about anything She prayed, Lord, help me. And so the next morning, Ms. Williams arose. She put on her dress, put the shawl around her shoulders, put the hat upon her head. She took her pocketbook and she went to the courthouse. Brian Stevenson, anticipating what was going to happen again, stood there on the other side of that metal detector by the deputy sheriff and the dog. He said, as Ms. Williams approached, you could hear her mumbling. As she got closer, it became more distinct what she was saying. I ain't afraid of no dog. I ain't afraid of no dog. Lord help me. I ain't afraid of no dog. Ms. Williams went through that detector, past the dog. And she sat on the front row by herself, behind the accused. And she got to hear the jury. Give the verdict. Not guilty. What are you facing? Whatever it is. Always. Always. About anything. Rejoice. Rejoice. Father, how grateful we are that you have given to us a joy not rooted in the circumstances of this world. That in the ever changing complexities of this life, we find ourselves rooted and stable in the abiding presence of your Spirit that enables us to rejoice. Rejoice always and in all things. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.